Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. Lord, we thank you that we're all here, that we have uh, your word in front of us that we can look at, that it's, uh, it, can, it can be made clear in our minds and hearts that, we give it, that it gives us a, uh, a um, guide to follow. And we thank you for that, uh, more precious than life itself. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. We've been looking at the book of Acts as the systematic fulfillment of all of God's promises made to Old Covenant Israel, and we have gotten down to the final section of this book, which was originally the second of two volumes that Luke wrote, the History of Christian Origins, the Gospel of Luke being the first book, and this last section of the book is a series of trials that Paul endures on his way to Rome. He's been trying to get to Rome for a while, but first he had to deliver a big contribution up to Jerusalem that uh, all the Gentile churches had been setting aside for some time. Paul felt this was very, very important to show that the other nations would, would be sending their wealth to Israel in fulfillment of yet another promise found in their scriptures. And so he had come along with this offering. Now, he, he took a very different tack on, his, on this visit than he did on his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion. Back in Acts chapter 9, we had looked at that where he immediately tried to take up where Stephen had left off going into the synagogue of the Greek-speaking Judeans, the uh, Hellenists, and trying to debate the Hebrew scriptures with them to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. But in one of his letters, he mentioned that Christ appeared to him in a vision and told him to not waste his breath because the people of the city would not listen to him and they would kill him. So this time he left. The disciples got him out back then and he went up north. But this time he comes in and he lays low. He, he's not disputing in any synagogue. He's, he just meets with the leaders of the assembly there in Jerusalem, and they want him to prove to the believers that he is faithfully following the law of Moses. And so he's gone up into the temple to help four men complete Nazarite vow and pay the cost of the sacrifices that were offered at the time that vow was fulfilled. And when he's there... Some of his Judean opponents from Asia saw him and 
stirred up a mob. Maybe they were there when the mob was stirred up in Ephesus, but anyway, they, they were successful in stirring up a huge mob in the temple courtyard, and uh, they were about to rip Paul limb from limb when the Roman garrison came down into the courtyard and had to literally carry him, lift him up above the masses to keep them from grabbing him back and ripping him apart. So this is where we are at this point. Uh, verse 36 has just ended with the crowd of people following the soldiers crying out away with him. So we'll pick up here in verse 37. We'll ask Leslie to read uh, to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 37. Just as Paul was about to be led into the headquarters, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? So you know Greek, the commander exclaimed. Aren't you that Egyptian who caused a riot some time ago and led a band of 4,000 cutthroats out into the desert? Paul replied, I am a Jew, a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, no mean city, I beg you, let me address these people. With his permission, Paul then stood on the steps and motioned to the people to silence. A great hush fell on them as he began to speak to them in Hebrew. All right, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So this uh, Roman officer was a little bit surprised here. He was thinking that Paul was a rabble-rouser, one of these zealots who uh, would kill a soldier in the night if he had the chance of rabble-rouser. And so he's rather shocked to learn that Paul can speak Greek. And he probably doesn't just speak Greek, but he probably speaks Greek like a college professor would have spoken Greek in a, in a highly educated manner. And so this is the first surprise uh, for the uh, captain who mouths his uh, assumption about Paul being this Egyptian that they probably had on their most wanted list. And then Paul further shatters his uh, assumption by telling them that he is a Judean of Tarsus of Cilicia. And Tarsus... Uh, I think we've mentioned this, but it is in what would be present-day eastern Turkey. Cilicia was uh, combined with Syria as a province under a Roman governor. And uh, Tarsus was a colony city of Rome, meaning that the people who lived there, if they owned property, were Roman citizens. And so the, this Roman officer should have uh, known enough to at least ask if Paul was a Roman citizen, which he failed to do here. But Paul does ask him in Greek, which was the common language throughout the Roman Empire. Latin was only used for official government functions. But the conversational language throughout the Roman Empire was Greek. And so Paul is speaking in the common language to this man and ask for permission to address the crowd below. And the officer does allow him permission to do this. And so he, the people are all looking because they want to get their hands on him and rip him apart. 
but they see him holding out his hand, and the crowd finally gets quiet. And then Paul addresses them, not in the Greek that he'd been using, that was his first language probably, but in what our English Bibles mistranslate as uh, Hebrew. Well, it is it is actually Hebrew and the Greek, but it's not the ancient Hebrew. It is Aramaic, which was the common language all the way east into Persia. It's where they would have run into a different language, but uh, present-day Iraq uh, and everything in between Aramaic would have been their, the native people's language uh, there. So... Uh, this is what he is uh, using now to speak to the people. And this is probably a really wise decision. It would be like uh, an Irish man accused of collaborating with the English uh, being taken away by English soldiers and the Irish crowd below is wanting proof that he you know, is not uh, a traitor. And so he would probably not address the crowd in English. He would use... Uh, the native Irish Celtic language, and that's what Paul does here. He uses their native language rather than the Greek spoken by the conqueror here. All right, any thoughts or comments before we go into Paul's address? Yeah, it seems in this whole chapter, when we look back at it, the so-called Christian, the Israelite Christians, if I may put it that way, uh, who were hanging out there, who Paul went to see and who brought this money to. I, it looks like I can see why he brought him money, uh, because there, it doesn't seem like there's any Christianity at all in the way they've acted in any way toward anything. It seems like nothing really has been accomplished in Jerusalem since uh, Paul left uh, and uh, has been out on his journey were there any real Christians there, or were they all Judeo-Christians or Christian Zionists, as we would think of them today? Because every time we hear about this, they're wanting to lynch Paul. Well, you're, you're mixing two different groups of people here. Uh, the, as we learned last time, there were myriads upon myriads, so we're talking probably over 100,000 Judeans in, in or near Jerusalem who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all their messianic hopes. Um, but there's this is the weekend of Pentecost, and so you have a million people in the city, roughly. Judeans from all over the Roman Empire have assembled there to observe Pentecost. So the, the mob that grabbed Paul, we can assume, were non-believers, unless there were a few believers in there who didn't even know what was going on. Because, you know, in any mob, there's absolute confusion. But, uh, no, the, the God's plan has worked exactly as Christ uh, laid it out in Acts 1, verse 8, where he told his disciples to be witnesses first in Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, and then go to the outermost parts of the earth. So the plan is certainly working. Uh, when we go to the book of Revelation, we see uh, Israel 
represented in all these images and, and a remnant of 144,000 who kind of represent the, uh, the remnant of the Judean people. And then the vision opens up to show countless, countless millions of other nations who have been joined into God's kingdom. So uh, these people in Jerusalem are doing God's will. They are working the plan. They are keeping the law, even though it doesn't have anything to do with their salvation, because they are trying to demonstrate God's faithfulness to Old Covenant Israel to make sure that all of the righteous remnant are saved before the nation is completely and totally destroyed. So uh, I, I hope that answers your question. Nope, but go ahead. <laughs> I still don't see where there, there's any Christian-like activity there. All, all I hear is uh, total hostility, uh, adherence to Pharisaic law. Uh, I, don't, I don't see why didn't Paul seek out the believers who were there if there were believers. I just don't. I don't quite understand how the chapter works. Well, there's yeah, well, also a lot of yeah. hostility, and you might say official persecution, and um, you know, coming from the government, because you have the chief priests and the elders, and so when you have a situation like that, they probably would have no doubt, you know, just as Paul had done sought letters from the chief priests and elders to take any who were um, of the way, as the uh, Bible says, mm -hmm. and to uh, put them in prison, to persecute them, etc. And yeah. so, you know, as a result of the great persecution that had arose, you know, following the stoning of Stephen, I would think the church had begun to take a more low-key stance because of the threats that would have um, uh, occurred for them, so they're probably, you know, and and the hostility uh, against them was probably so great that they would not have been as um, as open and vocal uh, as they were in the earlier chapters. Okay, thank you, William. Sure. Okay, well, let's. Uh, hopefully, we'll clear up some of Chuck's. Um, I don't want to use the word confusion, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> hopefully, we'll. Uh, be able to clear some of this up here as we progress through some of the details of these trials. And I think those excellent comments of William will also be tied in as we get into the details of the trial. All right, so let's start reading here in 22, and uh, let's read the first five verses, please. My brothers and fathers, listen to what I have to say to you in my defense. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they grew quieter still. He went on, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. Here I sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was educated strictly in the law of our fathers. I was a staunch defender of God, just as all of you are today. Furthermore, I persecuted this new way to the point of death. I arrested and imprisoned both men and women. 
On this point, the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, for it was from them that I received letters to our brother Jews in Damascus. I set out with the intention of bringing back the prisoners I would arrest back to Jerusalem for punishment. All right, thank you. So Paul has started off speaking in the national language, so to speak, of Aramaic, and he identifies uh, these people as brethren and fathers. He is still part of the nation of Judea. He is still part of the family of the nation, and he's not saying, well, I, you know, I've gone off and done something different. He's, he's still trying to identify very much as one of them. And because he took this tack, he gained uh, a respectful silence, as uh, verse 2 mentions. And then he, uh, he gives them some of his background, which we're already familiar with. Uh, again, the, the original word in the Greek is Judean. It's translated Jew in the uh, English, and it's not really a good translation because it doesn't convey that it's really speaking of nationality. You know, so he's he's not born in the country. He's born out in another city, in a Greek-speaking city. But he was sent back to the home country to be schooled at the feet of Gamaliel. And again, if if this is the Gamaliel, the elder that is mentioned in the rabbinic writings, uh, he is to this day by modern Jews considered the, one of the greatest teachers in all the history of Israel. And Paul is very proud that he studied under Gamaliel and learned the law in a perfect, complete manner, I think is the idea here, in a exactness. He, he, he had a teaching to the perfect exactness of the law of the fathers, and he was zealous towards God just as uh, they were this day. And then he mentions the fact this is this persecution that began upon the death of Stephen that William just mentioned, too, that he uh, gives a recap of here in verses 4 and 5. And he was on his way to Damascus uh, when our reading here ends. Any thoughts here before we go on to the next uh, verses 6 through 11? All right. Well, Leslie, please go ahead and read that then. As I was traveling along, approaching Damascus around noon, a great light from the sky suddenly flashed all about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I answered, Who are you, sir? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. My companion saw the light, but did not hear the voice speaking to me. What is it I must do, sir? I asked, and the Lord replied, Get up and go to, into Damascus. There you will be told about everything you are destined to do. But since I could not see because of the brilliance of the light... I had to be taken by the hand and led into Damascus by my companions. 
All right, great. Thank you very much. Now, we've already talked about this back in Acts chapter 9. We we learn a few other little details here. This uh, This appearance on the road to Damascus marks the end of the persecution of the believers by Saul. And interestingly, while the, the persecution didn't go away, it does greatly diminish once Saul of Tarsus is taken uh, out of the picture. There, Luke inserts a little blurb in the middle of Acts 9 after Saul's conversion, stating that the saints in Judea enjoyed peace and continue to teach and grow and prosper. So we can deduce from that that this Saul was the driving engine of the intense persecution uh, you know, that was going on. And when he's taken out of the picture here by divine intervention, the pressure at least eases up a bit for the disciples. But they do get scattered and they and that leads to all kinds of other good things uh, happening at that time. He is struck, or he's blinded. He loses sight as a result of the brilliance of the glory of the Lord that appears to him, and he has to be led the rest of the way into Damascus. All right. Any thoughts or comments? Our next section will be verses 12 through 16. A certain Ananias, a devout observer of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came and stood by me. Saul, my brother, he said, recover your sight. In that instant I regained my sight and looked at him. The next thing he said was, the God of our fathers long ago designated you to know his will to look upon the just one and to hear the sound of his voice. Before all men, you are to be his witness to what you have seen and heard. Why delay then? Be baptized at once and wash away your sins as you call upon his name. All right, thank you. So again, we we have still heard this part of the story from back in Acts 9. We'll get to hear it one more time when Paul makes his defense before Agrippa. This Ananias is a believer. He is a Judean, but he is living there in Damascus. And here is yet another reinforcement to what we talked about at great length last week, that the Judean believers were following the law of Moses and Paul states that, that this Ananias is devout according to the law. And he is still an active part, as are all the believers, in the synagogue communities of Damascus. Because that's where Paul was going. Uh, he was going up to the synagogues to try to arrest the believers who were within the synagogue communities. And so Ananias was one of these who Paul was going to try to arrest. Instead, Ananias comes to him and restores uh, his sight. I mean, God does it through the agency of Ananias. And uh, Paul has had three days of mourning where he just sat around in the darkness without eating or seeing. And, you know, we can speculate on what he had to give up. He, it, 
I, I believe that the the physical blindness and the instantaneous restoration of sight, which it says in Acts 9 is like scales falling from his eyes, represented the fact that his intense study of the all the Hebrew scriptures gave him the ability to instantly almost be able to get the correct interpretation of those scriptures. He had, he had before he was struck by blindness, he had looked forward to a physical fulfillment of those promises, a physical kingdom, the casting off of the Roman army, a physical resurrection, uh, which we'll talk about here later, uh, which the Pharisees wrote all these ridiculous papers on, uh, where all of the Israelites who ever lived who were righteous would all be physically resurrected in Palestine at the same time, and they'd have to build special high-rise apartments to house them all and so on. These were the, the interpretations Saul would have had before, and the light goes on, and I believe he's able to instantly realize the spiritual interpretation of all the promises in the Hebrew scriptures, but that's you know just my opinion. I mean, we can't say that, but we but we can see some hints of this later as he gives his defense. His sight is restored to him immediately, and immediately he starts going into the synagogues, arguing from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus the Nazarene is the long-awaited Messiah. So I believe there's a direct correlation that his physical blindness. His physical sight being restored are symbolic of his spiritual blindness and then his spiritual vision being instantly restored. And he's going to continue to use his commanding knowledge of all of the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures to prove in all the synagogues throughout the Roman world that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And Ananias tells him that he has been chosen uh, to do just what I, I just described, to be a witness to all men, Judean and non-Judean, of what you have seen and heard. And then he is immersed in water, uh, calling on the name of the Lord here, which ends his days of mourning and begins his work to bring about the spiritual kingdom of God. All right. Uh, thoughts or comments? I do. What gets me about this is this, this is a discourse to people that are basically his former colleagues, but he's on the other side of the fence. It's quite rather poignant that he's telling him this story, point blank, about what he's been through. I agree. I mean, he's... he's uh... He's got to be full of emotions. You know, he wanted to go to Jerusalem to to reach his brethren with the truth, and instead they tried to kill him. And so he stayed away from them, and he's worked everywhere else but Jerusalem and had great success. And, uh, you know, now he's back, and, I mean, this he wants more than anything for some of that crowd below to listen to him. I mean, it's an emo- it's got to be an emotional time for Paul. I would think. Let's go ahead and read 17 through 21, please. 
Upon my return to Jerusalem, I was praying in the court of the temple, where I fell into a trance and saw Jesus speaking to me. You must make haste, he said. Leave Jerusalem at once, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I answered, Lord, it is because they know that I imprisoned those who believed in you and flogged them in every synagogue. While the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood by and approved it. I even guarded the cloaks of those who killed him. With that he said to me, Be on your way. I mean to send you far from here among the Gentiles. All right, thanks. So Paul here is talking about when he got back to Jerusalem some three years after he set out for Damascus to arrest the believers in the synagogue there. He was in Damascus and in Arabia, which would be modern-day country of Jordan, perhaps, the Nabataean kingdom, and then part of Saudi Arabia where Mount Sinai was. He was probably down in that area for uh, for a good part of those three years. But he, he did come back up there, and, and again it said that he went back into the a synagogue, as I mentioned earlier. But Jesus does appear to him and tells him to get out of Jerusalem because they will not uh, listen to him. And Paul tries to argue with God, but that usually doesn't come out too good. Um, he's told to be on your way. I will send you far off. And Gentiles is not really a good word in our English translations. It makes a lot more sense if we understand that word as nations, uh, the nations far off, any of the any nation outside of Judea. And uh, so... He relates this to him. This is kind of a turning point of his uh, defense here from the steps looking out over the temple courtyard when he mentions this last uh, statement here. Any any thoughts or comments before we go on? In other words, uh, uh, Gentiles would be the non-Judeans, any nations and peoples outside of Judea. Yes, very much so. Thank you. And in the old, the remnants of old Israel are intermingled with the Gentiles, uh, the nations. So even even the rest of the lost part of Israel, they are now just part of the other nations. So that's a very good way to say it. Okay, now let's read 22 through 29, please. Up to this point in his speech, the crowd had been listening to Paul. But now they began to shout, Kill him! Rid the earth of the likes of him! He isn't worthy to live! They yelled and waved their cloaks and flung dirt into the air. At that display, the commander directed Paul to be brought inside the headquarters. He issued orders that he be examined under the lash to find out why they made such an outcry against him. No sooner had they bound Paul than he said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it legal to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? On hearing this, the centurion ran to the commander and demanded, 
do you realize what you are doing? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander rushed in and asked Paul, Is it true? Are you a Roman citizen? I am, Paul answered. The commander then observed, It cost me quite a sum to get my citizenship. Ah, said Paul, but I am a citizen by birth. At these words, those who were about to interrogate him backed away. The commander became alarmed because he realized that in restraining Paul, he had restrained a citizen of Rome. All right, thank you. Okay, so I think the important, most important point to note in this section is that the crowd went uh, wild. I mean, they turned into animals when he said that the Lord told him in a vision that he would be sent far off to the other nations. They, uh, th- they ended their silence and started to scream and holler like, uh, I don't know, banshees or something, uh, flying dust in the air, waving their garments around. So, I mean, they look like a bunch of gorillas down there or something. Uh, they go absolutely crazy. And and it doesn't make any sense why they did this because all of the prophecies that they listened to every week talked about how that in the last days of Israel that all the nations would be uh, drawn uh, to her. And these are people from all over the empire who have assembled for Pentecost. And so they're part of synagogues that have large numbers of Greek-speaking people sitting in the back, you understand, but they are there. They are there wanting to know about the God of Israel. So it doesn't make a lot of sense why they would go crazy because, I mean, they're, they are proselyting, uh, particularly amongst the Pharisees. They, they were proselyting throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, but mobs don't necessarily... Uh, listen to to uh, reason or do things in an orderly and logical uh, fashion. Do you have any insight, William, as to why they would have resented just the simple thing that he would have been sent off to the other nations? Well, I mean, obviously, in, in terms of uh, their very zealous uh, for the law, you know, being very zealous for the law and for their politicism for Judea. I mean, I think any Judean would have been very forward for that. And so to to say that he's going off to the nations was basically against everything that they stood for to a degree. And And I think that's one of the reasons. It's interesting that this turn of events against Paul is similar to what happened with Stephen. Because, you know, during the course of his speech, they were listening, and then at a certain point in the speech, they turned, you know, very uh, hostile to him. And this same thing seems to follow in this speech uh, that Paul is making toward them after he sort of has their attention, and, and then later, as he continues to talk, you know, they, get, they become very hostile against him. But I think that that is more of what's involved is they just believed that they were, you might say, the the elite, if you please, among them, and then they looked at those who were who had swallowed up among the Gentiles, as Hosea says, 
you know, they just viewed them all uh, the same. Okay, thank you. That helps to explain it uh, a little bit better, and appreciate that very much. All right, I think the other point in this passage to look at is just the fact that Paul does use his Roman citizenship here to prevent an unnecessary flogging that he would have received if he hadn't have uh, pulled the citizenship card, so to speak, here uh, as they were about to uh, flog him. He uses these things as tools, and, and we see that Rome is not really the enemy of the believers. Rome has just stepped in and rescued Paul from a violent death, which is certainly acting as the agent of God in, in a sense to spare Paul's life because he still had stuff he had to do to complete that uh, incredible job assignment that Christ gave to him. So the Roman military force here acts as an agent of God in preserving Paul's life and the enemy, of course, are these Judean mobs, as Chuck uh, mentioned earlier, that are just full of evil. And, uh, again, our dispensational friends, our Zionist friends, have had to kind of rewrite history and say that Rome was the great persecutor of the early church. But the, in the New Testament era, we do not see that to be the case at all. We see Rome is neutral and oftentimes a help, and we see that the enemy is the Judean leadership, as William mentioned, the national leadership of Judea are truly the enemy, and the, the mobs uh, of the Judeans are, are also an enemy. And this is the tension that exists through all the books of the New Testament. All right, any other thoughts then down through verse 29? All right, we just have one more verse in the chapter, verse 30. So let's uh, go ahead and read that, please. The next day the commander released Paul from prison, intending to look carefully into the charge which the Jews were bringing against him. He summoned the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin to a meeting. Then he brought Paul down and made him stand before them. All right, so... We're going to learn that this commander's name is Lysias, and he's very curious as to know what caused uh, that uproar uh, down there. And he found out that Paul's a Roman citizen, so he's, you know, he's not treated like a, a Judean zealot anymore. He's treated like a Roman citizen. But the commander calls out the national council. This is kind of a combination of our Congress and Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin of the Judean nation, and the occupying power, Rome, has the authority to call out the Supreme Court. And so he, he flexes his muscle to do that, and it's, he doesn't have to wait uh, three months or four months. He gets uh, this trial the next day, you know. So this commander obviously... He, he already was surprised by Paul, by his great learning, his vocabulary, and so on. And uh, the fact that he's a Roman citizen just builds him up, I think, in the eyes of this uh, well-intentioned Roman commander who, who seems to be a cut above 
Thanks for listening. Many of the if you like this program, please let your friends know read about, about it history and our other thought-provoking podcasts. The Roman and be sure to visit so, uh, our website, whtt.org, so, for a wealth of information on here, Christian Zionism we will get and other critical Paul's issues that defense. we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch point for break. free here, right here, our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy Looks like a very interesting chapter coming one. up. Join us in our yes, efforts to wake really the town and tell the people. <laughs> Start good, small, yep. so we want to thank you all for and press being on towards the tonight and for your comments, and William, uh, for yours. And